Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 229 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Tuesday, September 8th, 2020. We are coming off of a long holiday weekend. It was Labor Day this weekend. Hope everybody was able to get outside for a little bit. But we need to talk about basketball. We need to talk about football because ACC football starts this week. But before we get into all of that, I am your host for this episode, Sam Klein. I am joined as always by my two regular partners in crime. First of all, Jason Evans, who is back home in Atlanta. Jason, how's it? How does it feel to be home? Uh, it's very nice. I enjoyed the uh, the foray to the Jersey Shore. But you know what? The ACC is getting ready to start football, and so I had to come back to ACC country. That's right. Well, New Jersey is sort of in between ACC country, right? Because we've got yeah, we have a we have a team in Pittsburgh. We have or a, yeah, a team in Pittsburgh, which is in Pennsylvania. There's a team in New York. There used to be a team in Maryland, but now there's not. There's a team in Boston. There's a, yeah, there's a yeah. team in Massachusetts. So it's ACC ish, uh, not the way that that the ACC leadership would define the footprint, but. Well, I think we'll talk perhaps a little bit about that. Donald Wine is also here. Donald, how are you doing? I'm doing good and at risk of going off the tangent. Jason, you talked about you being in Jersey and coming back to ACC territory, and you forgot to tell the people that you stopped in Durham and went to cookout and fed, and fed it to your family and did a great job doing it. Yes, thank you so much. Yes, we so so I drove from from the Jersey Shore to Washington overnighted in Washington. And then I was driving back to Atlanta. Um, anyone who's made that drive, it's about nine hours. Uh, Durham is situated almost exactly in the middle, about four, four and a half hours from Washington, four and a half, five hours from Atlanta. Perfect spot to stop for lunch. My wife and I stopped and went to the takeout cookout on Hillsborough Road. She approves. So my life is better because I can now get cookout with my wife. Good job. Jason, most importantly, what was your uh, milkshake order and what was your wife's milkshake order? She got a chocolate malt. She is a chocolate malt fan. Um, I got the uh, peach cobbler milkshake. I probably should have gone with something a little more exotic than that, but I just, I love their peach cobbler. I mean, peach is the season. Yeah. And, and, and cookout is known for nothing, if not the freshest ingredients. This episode not brought to you by Cookout. This episode, though, is going to be about a lot of things ACC-related. So we will start with a statement that the ACC put out earlier today about the pandemic and about sports starting, because, of course, this is the week when football kicks off. The ACC also has all of its other fall sports going on. And I don't want to read the entire statement, but I want to pull out a couple of uh, notable clips from it, I I think, that, that... seem to resonate the most. So I'll just read a little bit. The ACC's principal priority as we approach fall competition is the mental and physical well-being of our student athletes. The majority of our student athletes have indicated they wish to compete if public health permits. The public health situation is dynamic and uneven in the United States and at our member institutions. As it has done all year, the ACC will carefully reevaluate the public health needs as we go along relying on public health expertise and putting the health and safety of our surrounding communities at the center of our decision-making. So I I pulled out that set of quotes. That's about a third of the statement, but it basically says the ACC is continuing to monitor the pandemic. The athletes want to play. The coaches and the administrators, of course, want the students to play if, if they are able and willing to play, and that the ACC is, is going to keep monitoring the situation. That's kind of the, the overall, uh, statement from the league, which which 
it's it's incredible personally I, I think that that they've made it this far but Jason I wanted to kick off this conversation by giving it to you because you took a look at ACC schools in different regions and how they're doing we know that the pandemic has affected different parts of the ACC's footprint in different ways so why don't you tell us what you have found yeah so I looked at a bunch of different ACC programs and the first thing I want to say is I am thrilled beyond belief that Duke's first game will be against Notre Dame because Notre Dame is one of the schools that looks like they're doing a pretty good job of controlling this. Um, there are some programs in the ACC, and I'll get to them in just a moment. If we were playing them, I'd be very, very worried. And, uh, and I make no comment on how things are going to play out over coming weeks. I'm only looking at this first week because I think we may learn a lot after the first games happen this week. First of all, for Notre Dame, actually, first of all, I should talk about Duke. From August 29th to September 4th, Duke performed 6,840, 6,840 tests of students. There were six positive results. That's pretty good. That's less than a 1% positivity rate. Uh, I mean, really, really impressive that Duke, um, that, that, that Duke just has got this completely under control on campus. The Duke athletic programs have been reporting on athlete positive tests. There, it has been several weeks since we saw a single athlete at Duke test positive. So I feel really confident that the Duke football team, when it goes up to Notre Dame, is not gonna bring the virus with them. Now, so that brings the question, is Notre Dame gonna bring the virus with them? And, and Notre Dame is another one of these schools that's doing pretty well. In the past week, Notre Dame has only had 26 positive tests on campus. That's pretty good. They've got more than 11,000 students. Um, and they had five football players who tested positive in mid-August, but the latest testing result three days ago found zero cases, no positive tests on the entire, entire Notre Dame football team. So it looks like Notre Dame is a place where they're doing a pretty good job of controlling the virus. That brings us to the next question, which is where are they not doing a good job? Ladies and gentlemen, Florida State. Florida State had more than 700 students test positive in the past week. How about Clemson? Clemson had 373 cases, 373 cases on campus of kids who tested positive in the past week. And by the way, the positivity, the test rate, the positivity test rate at Notre Dame, like based on the number of tests, how many tests come back positive, Clemson is at 15%. 15%. That is a really high number at, at Clemson. And, and Dabo Sweeney said on Tuesday that ACC coaches have agreed that when they that on game day they're going to let each other know who's available to play and who isn't but they're not announcing things publicly and he says oh i've only got a couple guys who tested positive in the past week um i i am very worried about some of these schools georgia tech has had more than 600 students test positive since the start of the school year we've heard about unc they they essentially sent all their students home because they had so many tests even sending all those students home this past week there were more than 260 students who are still hanging out around campus who tested positive at UNC. There are a lot of these schools that are in real, real trouble. And, and I, I'd be very worried if Duke was starting with one of them. I'm thrilled that we are starting with Notre Dame. Um, so Jason, and, knowing yeah, that, so, so knowing that, how long do you give the season before there's a big outbreak on one or two or three of the teams and the ACC starts doing what Major League Baseball did, which is canceling games here and there, but but canceling 
three or four games in the in the baseball season when there are 60 games that they're playing is one thing. And they're going to end up at the end of the season with teams having played uneven schedules. But in the ACC, you're basically only playing a conference schedule. And if a team loses three games to COVID because, you know, they have they have like one week, let, let's say they have, they have a bunch of guys test positive and they play another team who also has positive cases and the next two weeks are wiped out. What's that going to do to the season? And is anyone going to going to look at the results of the season as legitimate if if teams are missing two or three or four games because of COVID? Well, you, you asked a series of questions there. I'll take the last one first. I, I don't think anyone is going to consider this season completely legitimate um, in terms of like accolades and things like that. Look, uh, the Big Ten, I guess, may come back. The Pac-12, it looks like probably not. No matter what, if you make a bowl game, win a bowl, win a national title, assuming we get that far, it's going to feel strangely tainted because there was so much chaos around this season. So that's, and the same applies to the ACC. That's, that's your last question. Your first question, how long do I think it's going to last? I'm going to be honest. There's no way to know. Um, my bet is we're going to get at least a couple few games in before things start to head really downhill because these teams, they are, uh, the one good thing is they are testing regularly. And I'm under the impression, and I've got no reason to think this is not the case, that a guy tests positive and a team quarantines him. They take him, you know, he's not going to play in the game, even if it's a star player. And that, you know, that player is just sitting out. And so the guys who come to the game are guys who have tested clean in the past day or two because they're they're doing these tests like on Friday ahead of the Saturday games. Um, by the way, the, the Wake Forest athletic director this week said that his athletic department is paying $75,000 a week for testing. He, he, he revealed that fact, $75,000 a week for testing. That's a lot of testing that's going on at Wake Forest. I'm sure it's the same at all these other schools. So I think what you're going to see happen is at least for the first few weeks, teams are going to show up. But we're just going to go, hey, that, that star defensive back, he's not playing this game. He tested positive on Wednesday. Uh, you know, that, the backup quarterback, they're going to have to go with their third string quarterback if their first guy goes out because the backup quarterback isn't playing. There are going to be all kinds of things like that that we're going to see. But I think they're going to try and get in as many games as they can. And and I would bet that we'll get at least the first couple few weeks of games in because it looks at the moment like most of these teams have it largely under control. You know, three, four, five guys sitting out each week because of COVID, but not 30, 40 guys, which would mean you would have to cancel a game. That's just Donald, my opinion. What Donald, what do you what do you what do you see in all this, and and how do you how do you see it, you know, playing out for for Duke and for the ACC? So I think when it comes to Duke, I think the way they've been doing it, and we've heard a little bit about this through the basketball team, is that they've kind of put themselves in a bubble. They're living at the Washington Duke. They're they're not interacting with the rest of the student body, and so the chances of them developing something where even if there's a student outbreak, the chances of them being involved in that have gone down. And I think a lot of the teams are starting to do that. But what I want the ACC to do is something that the Korean baseball organization did when they started up back in May. They told us what would happen if we got to a point where there was an outbreak on a team or within the league. They basically said, okay, if there's one at this first few weeks, if there's one guy in the entire league that test positive, we are shutting the league down. That may be harsh, but at least it gave those players the common courtesy of saying, okay, if I mess up, I'm killing the thing for everybody else. And there's a lot of, that's a lot of players to be responsible for or to let down, right? 
So in this case, it would be, hey, if if a team tests positive and they got to sit out two weeks, they forfeit those games. Whatever that it, it, it doesn't. I'm not saying that necessarily has to be the deal, but if they come up with a plan and ex- and say this is what the plan is, this is what the contingency is, and this is what happens if if we have an outbreak, then then it puts the onus on the teams to be more responsible and, and to make sure that you know they are staying within their quarantine, staying within their bubbles that they've created and making sure that they don't ruin it for everybody else. Because if there's too many of this, then everyone's not going to be playing. And then, you know, that is something where I, I think the ACC has been lacking. It really just all of these, all of these conferences have been doing the same thing. They're not telling us what happens. They're just hoping that it doesn't get to that point. Just like baseball did. Baseball had this whole thing where they started up. Oh, yeah, it's going to be fine. And then, not even a week into the season, they had to worry about the worst case scenario. And they were talking about even canceling the rest of the season because of it. So I don't want that to happen to the ACC. I don't want that to happen to college football. But when they start, they need to understand that the onus doesn't end when the when the ball is kicked off on Thursday when Miami plays against UAB. The, it keeps going after that. So they have to keep pressuring and keep putting – the onus on these players and on these teams and on this on these schools to make sure that they're doing the right thing so that everyone can do what they have to do and play. And I think I'm the way that I'm looking at it is I, I hope that they get to play enough games that the players felt that it was worth going through all of the hurdles they had to they had to go through to to make this happen. They had to come back to campus, be subjected to the to the isolation protocols and and do all of this stuff. And a lot of them, you can imagine, I I think most college students have elected to go to campus, but, but are basically doing campus or doing the college experience on campus, but socially distant from other students. So will it have been worth it if they only get to play three or four or five games? That's going to be a, a, an interesting thing to hear the players reflect on when, whenever the season ends, the other part of it to me, well, and Sam, by the way, there are some players who've opted not to play. We have seen a growing opt-out list of, of some really significant players who say, you know what, I'm not going to risk my health. I'm going to prepare for the NFL draft. Guys who were going to be impact players on their teams. Um, it, it has not been an uncommon thing for that to happen across college, college football. And the conferences and, and the NCAA have taken a, a pretty lax approach to letting players not use. I mean, I think it's the, so far, it's all fall sports. Your eligibility is not affected if you, whether regardless of whether you play this season, which is going to put a different sort of crunch on the programs as far as the number of scholarships they give out in future years, because all these student athletes are going to come back for extra years that the schools can't necessarily afford. But at least players aren't making their decisions based on, oh, this is my last, this is my last opportunity to play because. My conference decided to opt in, but I don't want to. So uh, hopefully it's at least taking some of that stress off, although it's, it's putting it in other places. The one, the one last thing that I thought was interesting about this is the, there has been talk, I think particularly among ACC and SEC partisans over the last few years to redo the conference scheduling, because as the ACC and SEC schedules are configured, they have two divisions where every year you play around Robin within your division, and then you get to play two teams outside your division, which mean, and one of those teams is a permanent rival. So what ends up happening is the teams in the opposite divisions, if they're not permanent rivals as Duke would be with NC state, they almost never get to play each other. So Duke, despite being a, a 20 minute drive or 30 minute drive from NC state's campus, 
the football teams only play each other like once every six years, which just doesn't seem enough. This COVID uh, scheduling issue is going to make it more palatable for conferences to move to more of a, a pod scheduling system, which which perhaps I, I'm surprised they didn't implement it fully this year, but that they could in future years because it'll show that, hey, it is more fun if we if we mix up the schedules more than we have been before. Donald, I, I want to ask you really quick because I think that it's part of the discussion here, uh, probably not relevant to Duke, but still still part of it. What do you think about the the implications to the college football playoff now that the games are underway and some of the conferences are, are going forward and playing, including the two conferences that, that often sport the leading contenders for the national championship, being that Clemson and the ACC and then the SEC with Alabama and LSU and all those other programs. But Ohio State's not playing in in the national championship this year because the Big Ten's not playing. Whoever was going to be good in the Pac-12 won't get a shot, et cetera. What do you think about all of that? I think it's going to be wild because it, I think when it comes to, you know, they talk about the legitimacy of the national championship this year, it's still going to be legitimate because, as you said, the two teams that have been in the national championship or two conferences that have been in the national title game every single time are still playing this fall. And But when it comes to it, I think, again, we, we've talked about the, the lack of leadership at the NCAA level and even just between the conferences that they don't talk to each other, they have to understand that again, you know, the SEC could go through life and, you know, they think, Oh yeah, we'll have, you know, 2000 cases on campus. It won't matter because we're still playing football, but what if they get to a point where they're in the conference title game or they're in that semifinal playoff game and they have enough guys develop COVID that they can't play or they just have a decimated team. Is it then legitimate at that point? Or is it then where they say, oh, whoa, whoa, because we didn't have our guy, it's not, it, we, we don't really treat it as this 2020. We, we don't care about it anymore. I think, the, I think that's where the issue lies is that we are now into a point where college football and all the conferences and all the schools have to focus on this for the next five months because they have to be, the, they have to be perfect every single time. This, this is in the baseball terms. They have to have a perfect game every day. Because if they don't, it could mean the end of the season for everybody. It could also just mean that the legitimacy of the college football playoff is is vandalized because of the fact that some guys aren't taking it seriously. So the last thing I'll say about this is there, there's a way that COVID is going to impact these games that I think we hadn't thought that much about, <laughs> which is teams are preparing differently this season than they did in past seasons because they're concerned about the virus and spreading the virus. And some that means some teams have been a little bit slower to do like contact drills and actual full scrimmages and things like that. Just last night, we saw BYU play Navy and BYU beat the absolute snot out of Navy. Uh, the final score was 55 to three. BYU had more than 600 yards of offense Navy had only a hundred and something yards of offense. It was an absolute molly whopping. And after the game, the Navy coach said, this one is on me. And he said, we have barely done any contact drills. We haven't done any tackling drills or anything like that because we didn't want to expose our guys potentially to COVID. And so we weren't at all prepared for this game. And the BYU coach was like, yeah, we've been hit hitting each other, you know, <laughs> for weeks. So we knew what to expect. We were ready. And, and I'm going to be really interested in seeing 
over the course of these first games that happen these first couple weeks, are there going to be some teams that are completely unprepared because they were being too careful? Um, and, you know, I don't know where Duke is on this. I, I did a little research on Notre Dame. The Notre Dame defensive coach, they've been doing tackling drills, full tackling drills every single practice for the past month. And the thing about it is you will know immediately. This is football is yep. not a thing yep. where like basketball, people get rusty. We saw in the bubble guys get rusty. Shots aren't falling, but they look good, right? No. In football, you know immediately who is prepared and who isn't. And we'll find out uh, very soon if Duke is prepared. So we will talk about that upcoming Duke-Notre Dame opening night game that is coming up this weekend. But first, we're going to take a very quick break. So as we mentioned, as, and as hopefully you know, Duke is playing Notre Dame this weekend in the first game of the ACC season for Duke. It will be Chase Bryce's first game under center. He was announced as the starting quarterback this week, which I think was the, the biggest news out of, out of the end of Duke's summer camp ahead of the football season starting. The game is in South Bend. It is on Saturday. And Donald, I'm going to give it to you first. Tell me what you are looking for in this game between Duke and Notre Dame. So I'm going to start with Notre Dame because, you know, I want to I want to start with them. They are one of these teams that them entering, quote unquote, the ACC this year kind of throws the ACC into doubt because they are picked to challenge Clemson for that ACC title. They finished 11-2 last year. Uh, their two losses were a close loss to Georgia, but they also got punished by Michigan. Uh, and because of their national title hopes, they they now know whatever that means in, in 2020. They now have an inside track at challenging Clemson for that ACC championship. So, Donald, is, wait, hold on, hold on, Donald. You're just going to you're just going to scoot right on by them getting pummeled by Michigan and not kind of let that let that linger on us for for a few extra seconds. The fact that they were punished by Michigan is punishment enough for them. They get to live with that until 2033. So I don't have to remind them that every single year. I might, but I don't have to. <laughs> but anyway, the the one guy that we're going to focus on uh, for Notre Dame is Ian Book. He returns for his third season at quarterback. Last year, he had you know a breakout season for them, 3,000 yards passing, 34 uh, passing touchdowns. He turned the ball over only six times, and he rushed for over 500 yards. And that is particular note because last year when we played them in Durham, he ran all over us. He had 139 rushing yards on 12 carries, and he also had four, four passing touchdowns. The issue with the offense this year is that Book is losing a lot. He's lost a lot of his playmakers. Their top three wide receivers are gone. Their leading rusher is gone, and they have a new offensive coordinator who used to play for the Irish just maybe six or seven years ago. So Book right now is the focal point of the offense because we don't know – what his playmakers can do. But I will say he does have a very solid offensive line to back him up. So the Duke defense is going to want to contain him and box him in so he doesn't get room to run or, or just even have time to throw the ball downfield. The linebackers and defensive ends are going to be important uh, on defense to kind of contain Ian Book and make sure that he uh, makes bad decisions with the football. He doesn't turn the ball over much, but getting them off the field means our guys can get back on the field. 
Hey, hey, Donald, just really, really quick uh, on Notre Dame. One little thing I did find out as I was doing some research here, um, their, their starting running back is going to be a sophomore. Um, Kyron Williams is his name. Remember that name, people. It, this guy had four carries in his career. His freshman season, he had only four carries. You would think he's a nobody. He has been the absolute buzz of practice so far. Everyone at Notre Dame is talking about this guy running circles around everybody at practice. Um, they are really looking for big things. I saw a survey of Notre Dame fans asking who the breakout player for the team was going to be this year, and everybody is saying this running back, Kyron Williams, is the guy to keep out an eye out for. So you're right, Ian Book is the key, but uh, I think uh, we should really pay attention to to newcomer Kyron Williams as well. And And we know that, just judging from last season, that Duke's defense is still expected to be pretty good. Duke returns a lot of star players on defense. We we talked about how Mark Gilbert is back. Chris Rumpf had, uh, is a is a big headliner for Duke who's got who's got major pro potential. So those Notre Dame offensive series are going to be very interesting to see, especially the Duke secondary, how well it can contain uh, Book and, and Williams and and the rest of the uh, Notre Dame offense. Yeah, and really when it comes to the offense, you know, we'll talk about Chase Bryce uh, in a minute, but really they have to offer him protection because they're going to want and try and do things to neutralize. Really one person that you got to look out for on Notre Dame's defense, and that's Jeremiah Owosu-Koromoa. He's the contender for ACC Defensive Player of the Year. He is that good, and he had, a again, on the, on the defensive side, he had a breakout year last year. This year, now that they're in the ACC, he absolutely will – challenge for any linebacker or defensive player of the year awards that are out there. The key for Duke is this though. Last time we were in South Bend was 2016. We upset the Irish because the guys didn't let the history and the pageantry of Notre Dame stadium and touchdown Jesus and all of that crap get to them. They can't let the moment consume them. I know it's the first game. It's the, it's a chance for them to start anew to prove that, you know, throughout all of this, COVID nonsense throughout all of this, you know, quarantine and everything that they were focusing on playing football and they can come out and punch a team right in the mouth. And that team is the Irish. So they have to be poised in the same way that they were four years ago. I know that none of those guys from four years ago are on this team, but that, that poise needs to be there and they have to make plays on both sides of the ball. If they can do that, anything can happen. I'm not selling our guys short. I know they're going up against a really good team in the Irish. It pains me to say that the Irish are supposed to be really good, but they are. But at the same time, we could end their national title hopes on Saturday if we want to, because we have the guys and we have the capability to do it. And if Notre Dame takes, you know, doesn't doesn't take us, it takes us lightly, we can sneak out of South Bend with a win once again. So let's go ahead and do it. So Donald brings up an interesting point about the fact that Duke is traveling to Notre Dame Stadium, which has all of its history and all of its pageantry and its traditions. But listen, they're not going to have a full crowd at Notre Dame Stadium. So it's not going to be the true, uh, what do they call it, wake up the echoes experience that, that you normally get in South Bend. What is that going to be like for this Duke team and other teams visiting Notre Dame this year? So Notre Dame has announced that the crowd will be limited to 20% of the stadium capacity. Um, and and that, that translates to around 16, the stadium usually has 80,000 people. Um, that translates to around 16,000 people, I'm good at math, uh, who, who, who will be in the stadium. It'll be a very, very different atmosphere as a result. And the other interesting thing about it is um, the priority goes to students. Students will get 
as many tickets as they as they need. And once that student ticket demand is met, they will give the remaining tickets to Notre Dame faculty and staff. There will be no one, I want to repeat, no one from outside of the university community will be allowed in that stadium with the singular exception of family members of players. If you're, you know, if, you, if you're a parent of a player, if you're a brother or sister of a Notre Dame player or a Duke player, you will be allowed in the stadium. But those are the only exceptions. So these rabid Notre Dame fans who live around South Bend or people who come in from far away to go to these games, not going to be allowed in the stadium at all because this is Notre Dame trying to, you know, keep a handle on the virus. And I think it's a, a, an interesting thing. We'll be, it'll be very interesting to see what the atmosphere is like. There will be some noise from that crowd for sure. But it's not going to feel anything like what a regular game uh, would really feel like. And and I, I want to just really quick regarding Duke. I, I'm there are two guys I'm dying to see play. One, you know, we've talked about it a lot, but we're all really interested in seeing Chase Bryce uh, under center at quarterback, um, and that's a that's a big deal for Duke. This is a guy the entire when he was officially named the starter the other day, like virtually the entire Clemson. Um, community players, you know, who used to play with him and everybody uh, cheered him and, and said how pleased they were and how great he was going to do at Duke. There are people out there who think that Chase Bryce is a future pro quarterback um, who never really got a chance at Clemson because he was playing behind, you know, future top five draft picks um, at quarterback. But they think that th this kid could really be great for Duke. So I'm dying to see him play. And the other guy I'm dying to see play, Damon Filiard Johnson, who who is probably the best return specialist in the entire ACC. He's the only, only preseason All-ACC player for, for Duke, named as the return specialist All-ACC, moves into the starting wide receiver position for Duke. I'm dying to see Chase Bryce get the ball to Damon Filiot Johnson in space and see what he can, he can do. I th that guy is super exciting to watch. It's going to be you know really interesting, really fun. Um, and, and then the last thing that's sort of the other thing that's sort of new that is really worth noting is that David Cutcliffe is the new offensive coordinator for Duke. Uh, for the first time in, in you know, many, many years, we're going to have a new guy calling the plays. And it's going to be David Cutcliffe himself. Um, I know there are a lot of people who thought that Duke's play calling was a little overly conservative at times in recent years. It'll be very interesting to see if Cutcliffe is a little less predictable. Um, and, and so that's the big thing I'm looking for from Duke. Uh, it, I know it's mostly on the offensive side of the football, but uh, new quarterback, new offensive coordinator, and Philly Al Johnson moving into a position where he can cause damage on more than just kickoffs. And for me, Jason, Chris Rump on defense is a guy that since the spring people have been talking about being an impact player on, on defense nationally. Like one of these guys that people nationally are saying, this guy can be an impact player. And what I want to see from him is for him to be able to be a guy that takes over where he comes out and says, I don't care what offensive schemes they're running. This offensive line is mine. This quarterback is mine. That ball is mine. I want to see him go out and take over because a guy on the line that can make an impact like that is going to create so many more uh, avenues for the rest of our defense to shine, especially the secondary, because it's going to they're going to rush the quarterback, and the defense is going to be on their uh, the offense is going to be on their toes because they can't run the ball. And so I think Rump has that has that ability to take it to the next level, and I'm really curious and and, and excited to see if he can do that. And you know, by the way, it's not just him, uh, Victor Dimukeji, uh, who's the other defensive end for Duke. I mean, both sides of the defensive line. Dimukeji is getting a lot of NFL buzz. This is a guy who had eight and a half sacks last year for Duke. He's now a senior. 
Uh, there, there's there's little question right now that the NFL thinks that this is a guy who could be taken in the third, fourth, fifth round of the NFL draft. So, you know, he could play his way into an even higher spot in the draft if he has a big year. But for Duke to have these two guys as, as our defensive ends, I, I do not feel like I am resorting to hyperbole to say that these are probably this is probably the best pair of defensive ends that Duke has had, uh, you know. Since I started watching Duke football in a long time, this is a yeah. really, really big deal for us. I wanted to come back to one more point that I'm not sure all Duke fans realize about Chase Bryce, which is that he is a redshirt junior. So there is a chance that that we have him not just for this season, but for next season too. I think the ideal state for him, given that he's already a graduate student, would be that he performs well enough that that he could try to go get drafted next year. But this could be a a longer term solution for Duke at the quarterback position, uh, a position that prior to last year, where Duke you know didn't have didn't have super high profile guys, we had Daniel Jones in there for the for the previous year. So it would be pretty cool to re- to return to a place where Duke's got a top flight quarterback in there for for a couple of seasons to really get in a good flow with the offense. And then as we've talked about this season sort of regardless of what happens is going to feel like a little bit of a, a weird, not throwaway season because the players are, are still getting up and, and getting ready and, and Duke still could play 10, 11 games this year. So we could see most of an, uh, a normal season, play. but it is going to feel a little different. So I would feel bad for guys who, who would only get one year to play college football, at least at Duke and to have this be it. But, uh, so hopefully that means we, we will see, Chase Bryce again next year. Donald, give me one more thought, and then we'll we'll leave it there. Slight tangent to end this. You mentioned uh, Daniel Jones. Just want to mention that today he was named as one of the captains for the New York Giants. So Danny Dimes, in his second season, is the man in New York or New Jersey or both. Uh, but I just want, just want to shout that out. It's very rare that Duke players get to make it to that point quickly so quickly in their career. We've seen Vinny Ray as a captain for the Bengals back in the past, and now we have Danny Dimes for the Giants. Good on him. So awesome to hear about Daniel Jones. Can't wait to watch some Duke football this weekend. I cannot express how ex- how surprised I am that they're actually going to pull this off and that they're actually going to play at least one football game this ACC season. So kudos to to all the programs for for figuring out how to how to keep all the players safe. I, I I hope it continues. I hope that they that they do a good job. If they don't, well, no one's really doing a good job at this point. So so you can't really blame them as much as you can blame anybody else for all of the the madness and chaos that's been going on uh, here and and around the world. So we'll leave it on on that somewhat dire note. Uh, hope everybody gets to tune into the Duke Notre Dame game this weekend. And we will be back again very soon to talk a little bit more NBA playoffs. We were light on that this week because there just there weren't as many things to talk about. Jason Tatum is is still leading the Celtics, and they're in a great series with the Raptors. A, a few of the other Duke guys have have lost, but but there are still some guys in there. So we will talk more NBA playoffs when when there's more to discuss. We'll talk more Duke football. We'll talk about whatever you want. Feel free to email us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, concerns. If you want to talk about your favorite cookout shake, we obviously love hearing about that sort of thing. So get in touch with us, whatever it is, is on your mind, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We'll come back to you sometime, probably next week, maybe later this week. Who knows? We're not on any sort of schedule. The world is is in the midst of an enormous pandemic. It's disrupting everything and anything in its wake. So why not the DBR podcast too? Therefore, we'll talk to you again soon for Jason Evans.
for Donald Wine. I'm Sam Klein. This has been episode 229 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home.